As we stand, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, the Bible. We pray that you would speak to us by your spirit and show us show us Jesus, that we may see his glory, that we may see who he is and why he has come. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Those words that we've just sung, guide me, O thy great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Well, it was one of those songs sung last Saturday, not Saturday past, the Saturday before at the Aviva as Wales played Ireland. Welsh were singing away and thanks be to the Lord that they're singing died down uh, halfway through the game. But like, what does that mean? What does that song mean? It's not just a Welsh song created by a man called William Williams. You couldn't get any more Welsh, could you? And what does that song actually mean? Feed me till I want no more. Well, our next section of Mark's Gospel is going to show us that. So if you want to open your Bibles at page 1009, Mark chapter 6, Let's look at what he's got in verse 30 and let's see what it's got about because this really is a great Sunday school favorite, isn't it? And no wonder it's a great story to tell our children to get them ready. There's a lot of cutting out of the bread and the fish and putting them, getting a wee basket ready and putting them in the basket. But once we've done that kind of stuff, what else do we learn from this miracle? Well, it's not hard for us to kind of come up with some answer. We could say, look at Jesus' prayer. Look at the compassion of Christ. Look at how he provides abundantly. Look at Jesus the creator. Now all those things are true, but only if we get them in the right perspective of this passage. Only if we understand what Jesus is doing here as he tends these 5,000. Now this morning we're only going to read through the first half of our, we're going to study our first half of our reading. We read down to verse 56, but we're going to study verses 30 to 44. But what I want to do is ask you, what is the feeding of the 5,000? And in the miracle of the walking on the water, what do those miracles have in common? What do they have in common? Well, obviously they show Jesus' power of creation, but there is more. And it's probably because we're so familiar with this miracles, both those miracles, that we don't see what joins them together. Because if you think about it, both of these miracles are actually unnecessary. Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on the water, they're actually unnecessary. Mark's gospel, we've already seen that Jesus is the he has power over the authority over nature and the supernatural, haven't we? We've seen him over chronic sickness, death. We've seen him, his power over the sea in Mark 4 as he calms it. And here with this crowd getting hungry, there's an obvious solution. Even the disciples, not always the sharpest tools in the box, they understand that there's an easy out for Jesus. Look at it at verse 36. They say to Jesus, send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. There's a simple solution to feeding the 5,000. Tell them to clear off. 
there's a town over there and a town over there and a village over there and a village over there and there's shops. There's probably be an Asda or a Tesco if they go to the nearest town. Tell them to go buy food over there. Simples. Obvious solution. Jesus didn't need to do anything. So why did he step in? Why does Jesus do what he does here? Well, first of all, he wants us to see who he is. Verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Put your finger on Mark 6 and come with me to page 865 in your Bibles. Page 865. And hopefully there you'll find Ezekiel 34. And from verse 8, we read these words. Page 865, I think it is. If it's wrong, please tell me. Verse 8. And let's read this. It says, As surely as I live, says the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd who has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm against these shepherds. I will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove from the tending the flock so the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. And as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they're scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I'll bring them out of the nations and gather them from the countries. I'll bring them into their own land. I will pass them in the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and all the settlements of the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountains and heights of Israel will be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing land, and they'll feed in a rich pasture in the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and make them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I'll bind up the injured, strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. See, from the very time of the exile, God had promised the people of Israel that they're... David, would you turn my microphone down a wee bit? Thank you. It said that the, 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 the leaders of Israel, that they would be taken away. And that one would come as the shepherd of the people, God's shepherd. A good shepherd would come to the people of Israel. And now I come back to Mark 6, because there Jesus says, his people, verse 36, sorry, verse 32, Sorry, verse 34, I'm going all over the place this morning. When Jesus landed, he compassionated on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And now here he is, God's shepherd, the good shepherd. And he's looking after the sheep because he's teaching them. He's teaching them the right things. And he feeds them, he's compassionate on them. And then as we read on, we see another miracle that we'll look at next week. We're going to study this next week, where it's Jesus walking on the water. But look at the end of Mark 6, verse 51. Just turn there, we say, Mark 6, verse, the end of it, verse 51. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts 
were hardened. You see what Mark's saying there? He's connecting these two miracles together, and he's saying these people, these disciples, didn't understand the miracle of Jesus walking on the water because they didn't get the miracle of his feeding the people. They didn't understand about the loaves, about the bread. So what's happening here? What's going on? Well, Mark said, if they'd understood what Jesus was doing, feeding the bread, they'd also get the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. Now, this morning, I've kicked off the moths of my wallet, and I've brought to you a pound coin. Okay? Just to help you. There, I got it up there. There's a new pound coin. Okay? Now, imagine... Somebody from outside the UK, an immigrant comes to this country, and they get one of these. They get a pound coin. All right? He takes it and looks at it, and he says, that's really, really weird. Look what I can see in this coin. It's a flower, some weeds, and a vegetable. He'd be shocked, affronted. How very dare you say that about our coins? How very dare you? Do you not know on the left is the Tudor Rose. We talked about the Kingdom of England between 1485 and 1603. If you were a historian, you'd say it's it's the mixture of the House of York and the House of Lancashire, the end of the War of the Roses, the beginning of the Tudor dynasty. The thistle. Well, we know the legend of the thistle. Do we know the legend of the thistle? Why there's a thistle there? Well, every day's a school day, let me tell you. It's... It's told that there was a sleeping party of the Scots and they were saved by an ambush by an invading Norse army when they came through the night and the enemies trod on a thistle. Ow! So the Scots who were there were able to defeat them. The shamrock. Now who knows about the shamrock? What's the shamrock? Some pop, right? Tells about the Trinity. Have to tell you it's absolutely heresy what he says. I'll teach that another time. But, um, yeah, he taught about the, the Trinity through the shamrock. And the leek. Does anybody know about the leek? Well, it's Welsh, yes, we know it's Welsh. But St. David ordered his, his soldiers to put this root vegetable on their cap. And to this very day, the Welsh guards have a leek as a symbol in their army's cap. Now, imagine if this immigrant, this this foreigner had said, gone to Carvedith and said, why do you shoot the people have a root vegetable on your coin? He'd probably get a smack in the gob. He doesn't understand it. Well, the disciples don't understand about the loaves. They don't understand about it. And we might be like this immigrant, not knowing what all this is about, not knowing what is the significance of it all. And in Mark's gospel, when we get stuck like this, the answer is always go back to the Old Testament. When we get stuck, the answer is always go back to the Old Testament to see from there what we can learn, what Mark's going to say. And as we look back, we'll see that the bread is very, very significant, even more than a leek or a shamrock or a thistle or a rose. Now, if you have a Bible... Keep a finger on Mark 6 and go to page 75 in your pew Bibles. And there you'll find where Stephen read our first lesson from Exodus 
chapter 16. There we read from verse 34, verse 32, should I say. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded, take an omer of manna. That was the bread given for, for the people in the wilderness. And keep it in for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I give you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord that can be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. See, there we get the story of God's people being saved. And if you've ever read the story of Exodus, you'll see that God rescued God's, his people from the land of Egypt. That was a foundational event for the identity of God's people. In the Exodus, it begins with God's people, the Israelites, facing harsh slavery from their masters, the Egyptians. They cry out to God and he sends them a man, Moses, to go to Pharaoh and say, if you ever watch Prince of Egypt, watch the film, ever go to the musical, let my people go. Pharaoh thinks about it for a nanosecond and goes, no. God sends him nine plagues. Even in the face of those nine plagues, locusts and everything else, Pharaoh says, no. And there's one final plague. One final plague. He says, every firstborn, Egyptian or Israelite, they'll be struck down dead. He tells his people, the Israelites, that if they want to be saved from this, they must take the blood of a lamb and daub it on the doorposts of their house. Only then will God pass over their houses and save their firstborn. Which is what happens. Only then, but all the others are killed, even Pharaoh's household. So he can't get rid of the Israelites quick enough. So he drives them out of Egypt. Then if you remember, he changes his mind, causing his army to chase after them, who are now trapped, and the Israelites have the, the Red Sea in front of them, the, the Egyptians coming down off the mountains behind them. What could they do? Did you know that the Lord opens up the Red Sea and drowns the Egyptians? And the Israelites make their way to the promised land. And in the wilderness, they cry out to God for food. And he gives them bread from heaven, manna. It's an amazing story of God's grace. God's salvation grace. The Israelites redeemed from slavery to enjoy God's blessing. That's when the people become a nation. And every year they celebrate it and they still do celebrate the Passover, Peshach, as a reminder of what God has done. That's a quick summary of Exodus. Read it for yourselves. You'll see what Jesus has in mind here. And if you look at Exodus, you'll see there are a lot of parallels to what happens in Mark. So come back to page 1009. Did you notice a Stephen read in verse 31, 32, 35? Mark writes that Jesus was in a salty place, a remote place, a desolate place, or we could say... A wilderness place. Just like the Exodus. And you remember when Jesus, when he provided the, the bread, what did he do? He looks up to heaven, verse 41. 
Where did manna come from? Heaven. Okay? And if you look in verse 44, we're told in the Greek, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. But can you tell me, what else was on the menu that day? Fish! Brilliant! You were listening. Yeah. But the focus is on the loaves. We're not told about the fish here. And so you might say, so, so what? So why is Jesus reenacting the great exodus? Why is he doing that? Well, it's here and now that Jesus wants us to see who he is and why he has come. And we need to understand this. We need to get this. We've seen so far that Jesus is an outstanding character. No one can deny that. And like many then and now, people interpret this miracle for their own agenda. So I have read the feeding of the 5,000 is a challenge to us to feed the hungry. That might be, but it's not exactly what it's first about. Others see this as a kind of justification for socialism. May well be, but that's not exactly what it's about. But to see Jesus like that is to miss the point. We must read this in the light of the Exodus. This is a freeing from slavery. This is a redemption. And in marrying the Exodus, Jesus is showing us that he, what he has come to do, this new Exodus to bring redemption to free slaves. By linking Jesus to the Exodus, Mark is saying something that all of us need to hear. He's saying that Jesus has not just come to bring a series of many rescues, you know, cleansing one leper, raising one person from the dead, saving one tax collector. No. He's come about to bring the rescue, the capital R rescue. Now at this moment, I guess we could be scratching our heads. Jesus has given us a, a, a pattern, a framework in which we can understand his work. And as we study these verses, we know that we must understand them as redemption, as a rescue. And we could go back to the Exodus and see what Jesus has in mind there. But now as we move forward, Mark will tell us what we need to know. If this is a redemption, who needs to be redeemed? Who's in slavery? Who is it Jesus is going to rescue? How will he do it? Well, Mark is going to show us. He's going to show us. And we're going to need to listen. So rather than tell Jesus what we think he's there for, we're going to have to listen carefully. As Jesus tells us why he has come. He has come to bring about the greatest rescue of them all. And so as we close this morning, I want you to look at verse 42. It's very important, that new verse. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. Mark is showing us that Jesus provides us with the satisfaction that you and I hunger for. And as we can look at the big picture, as we start coming back from it now, we can start to understand that Mark is not just saying that Jesus has come us to give us that Christmas afternoon feeling. Do you know that one where you need to take another notch off your belt? Uh, uh, for me, it's a button in the top collar. You know, 
when the Queen's speech comes on, you've got so much food, it's like... That's not what he's talking about. He wants us to be satisfied at the very depth of our being. So the question to you and to me is this. Are you satisfied? It's a question that we all chase around trying to fight. People today inside the church and outside the church are trying to find it. They're working, they're chasing after satisfaction, looking for it in all sorts of ways. In relationships, in friendships, in achievements, in our children, in our charitable work. But none of these will ultimately satisfy. Paul Sykes, an English businessman and a Brexit donor, he's made £650 million. He's now 76 and he said, I'd rather have stayed a tire fitter where I started. Money just brings a load of problems. Or what about achievements? I read about an Olympic gold medalist who thought that winning gold would bring them satisfaction. And when they crossed that finish line in the London Olympics and got their medal, all they've done ever since is try to beat off every competitor who wants to beat their mark. The Rolling Stone classic. I'm not going to sing it. I can't get no satisfaction. Says it all really, isn't it? Satisfaction, we chase it through things and it's like chasing after mist. But you and I were created to find satisfaction in only one place. Actually, it's not a place. It's a person. One person. And it won't come after chasing after created things. We can't even work it out for ourselves. But we were made to know, we were made for love, we were made for trust, we were made for serving Jesus. And the truth is, we've all looked elsewhere for a rescue. And that's why we've been enslaved. That's why we're slaves. We've looked after in money. And money can bring us good things, not only money. But money says, there's no end to it. Who does all the work to get the money? Me, you. Fame, wanting to be known. We'll, we always want to be known well, but who has to do all the work? Me and you. See, it's really simple. But it's so profound. We've all looked somewhere else for a rescue. And that's why we've become enslaved. We'll see more of that next week. But Jesus came to redeem and rescue us. And Mark's gospel will show us how he did that. And more than that, as we follow this gospel, we'll see not just what we are made for, but who we are made for. We're made for Jesus. To know him, to feed on him. And he is only the one, he is the only one who is able to satisfy the longing of our hearts. And if you want to know that this morning, if you want to know Jesus and his rescue, why don't you tell God right now as we pray to God? Why don't you stop and say to Almighty God, Lord, I've been enslaved by all this guff. 
And I want to know satisfaction in you. Because as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you, in Jesus. Let's do that now as we pray together. Let's pray. They all ate and were satisfied. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending your Son to redeem us from our slavery. As we read on in Mark's Gospel, help us to see what that means. Lord, in your mercy, show us the pointlessness of seeking ultimate satisfaction in things or creation. Help us to see that Jesus can only provide for that need. He's the only one who can save us. So Lord, we pray that we would say sorry for trying to find satisfaction everywhere else apart from you. And then by faith, lead us to yourself, Lord. Lead us to the one who is the good shepherd, God's shepherd, who satisfies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.